0: Welcome in! Thank you so much for joining us on the CCA California podcast. As always, my name is Chris, and uh, I'm coming at you from our home studio in Lake Elsinore, California. And today we are going uh, not across the pond, but across the country a little bit to Texas. But before we do that, guys, make sure to follow us on Instagram at CCA California. Give us a like on Facebook leave us a five-star review all that good stuff uh on the podcast and uh we certainly do appreciate it today we've got mr shane bonnet hopefully i'm pronouncing that rightly right uh from cca texas shane welcome to the podcast hi hey chris thank you for having me glad to be here yeah yeah it's good to have you first things first have you been fishing lately
1: well it it depends on how you define lately I would say, uh, I would, my answer is no, uh, because to me lately means last weekend. So I have not been fishing lately. Uh, I have had the opportunity a few times this, this summer of 2022 to, to wet a line or two, but not doing it near as frequently as, as, as I
0: should, or anyone else should
1: that loves the coast.
0: I think that's the standard answer for everyone because we always want to be fishing more than we normally do. <laughs> you can't do it enough, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, we're going to get into a lot of uh, CCA business for sure and uh, all that, but before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Okay, uh, I'm born and raised uh, in
1: Texas. I um Graduated college uh, and with my master's and, and moved to Virginia for a few years and managed an oyster hatchery at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science and moved back home to Texas to start a family and began working for our natural resource agency, which is Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. And I was there for 10 years working in the stock enhancement program, which is our coastal hatchery system. And I was a biologist there uh, for five years and a hatchery manager there for another five years. And we, in that job, we would release red drum and spotted sea trout and southern flounder fingerlings back into our base systems to enhance the ecosystem. And since 2016, I have been with uh, CCA Texas. <laughs> and my role there is advocacy director. Uh, for the state.
0: Oh, cool, man! So you kind of do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I get to dabble in in a wide
1: variety of, of of issues. So it's it it is it is not singularly focused on any specific uh, subject or or problem going on with the state. And so, yeah, I mean, it really it ranges um, from freshwater inflows to fisheries issues to you know, environmental issues around um, industrial uh, permits, and so uh, I get to meet with with members, um, routinely attend their their uh, meetings, um, general membership meetings, or we call some some groups down here call them angler night outs. But I travel around the state talking to
0: folks about fishing and uh, sound conservation measures. Nice. Out of all of that, is there a uh, a favorite uh, a favorite area that that you like more than others, or you kind of like just like it all? Well, I I tend to you know I
1: gravitate towards the areas that I'm most knowledgeable in, and so you know things going on in Texas right now. There's two specific species that you know we are constantly keeping our, our eyes on, and that's southern flounder and and our native oyster here the eastern oyster um, and so those are two flounder and oyster are, are two subjects that are really relevant right
0: now and near and dear to my heart so I kind of gravitate towards those two huh, interesting what's going on with the flounder out there is there anything that we need to know about or or just kind of just it's just one of those species where you kind of constantly have to keep an eye on well it, you know as it turns out it's something that you we we really
1: need to keep our our eye on and not just in Texas, but across the entire geographic range of Southern flounder and, and actually other, other flatfish species as, as well. Um, Southern flounder specifically, they range from Northern Mexico all the way around to the Atlantic seaboard to, um, you know, North of Virginia. And so, um due to w- warming winter water temperatures, we are starting to see decreased recruitment of southern flounder fingerlings into the ecosystems within their geographic range. And so um, it's something that a lot of states are keeping their eyes on, and states are taking different actions, different management measures to try to uh, help the stock get back to its um Normal levels, but it's just one of those things that we, as we start to see warmer waters, the uh, it has implications for recruitment into estuaries and also sex determination of that species. So, um, one of the more recent actions that a couple of states have taken is implementing a closure while the fish are migrating offshore to go spawn. And so Alabama has a closure. Louisiana just passed their closure and then Texas passed a closure a few years ago. So um, hopefully that gives an opportunity when you protect that spawning stock biomass to go out and spawn. It gives the fish a little bit of a break, Um, go out and do their thing out in the Gulf. And um, hopefully we'll start to see a little bit of rebound. But, you know, really that we really need some warm, I mean, some colder winters consecutive colder winters and those and i'm not saying detrimentally cold winters just back to average cold winters and uh, that that that's ultimately what will help the fish come back
0: that's interesting i mean with at least for the california halibut out here um i'm not sure about the pacific halibut but the california halibut you kind of hit on a point where and, and some people don't really know this the halibut and correct me if i'm wrong shane they basically need a very specific water temperature in order to spawn or to get them to spawn. I, th- I think that's right, right? Yeah, I,
1: I, and I don't want to speak in, in too general terms, and sure. I, I am not an expert on California halibut. I mean, the southern flounder is, is, is my fish that I know the most about. Mm-hmm. However, they're, they're both flat fish, so that I think there's some assumptions that you can make across the, the various species And because they're a cold water fish, um, and at least in the case of southern flounder, they go offshore to spawn, those offshore water temperatures, for the most part, are are relatively stable. And that, as you you mentioned, the window of tolerance that, that the fish have, and I say fish, the egg development and the larvae development, the window of tolerance they have, for those first first few days, at least of their life, is very very narrow. But as they grow and develop, um, and as they particularly after they start their first feedings, and um, they've already consumed their yolk sac, and their uh, fins are developed, and they're out there hunting zooplankton and things like that, as they start to develop that that tolerance or that window increases, um, and so we really, for Texas, we our hope is that our closure, which occurs in the fall, November 1st through December 15th, is timed when we get some of those cold fronts that tells the fish to spawn. And so our hope is that by, doing, by having the closure where there's no pressure on the fish, we get some cold fronts and the fish spawn and the water temperatures are right where they need to be for successful uh, recruitment. But yeah, it's... It's it flounder are funny, and they you know they go through this metamorphic process in which their eye migrates to the other side of their body. And so you can imagine how stressful that would be when bones are shifting around in your skull. and so um, we we you know when when they're stressed with that, coupled with environmental stresses, whether that be temperature or, you know, you name it, uh, algal bloom or low DOs or uh, a salinity that's outside of their preferred range. Uh, When they have those multiple stressors, you're just going to have reduced survivability. So um, giving them the opportunity to spawn and and hoping and keeping your fingers crossed for those suitable conditions is about the only things uh, that we can do other than stock enhancement, which is, you know, adding to adding fish into back into the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and, and speaking about adding fish and all that, in, in California uh, for the last, I think, couple of years, funded all by private money um, through the Hub Sea World Research Institute, we've actually been able to... So I'll give an example. So the, the San Diego chapter, uh, back in, I think, 2018 and 2019, we went on broodstock trips and caught all this broodstock, uh, California halibut out of San Diego Bay and all that, and all those fish got delivered to the hatchery. And so after maybe a few short months later um, those guys actually got the California halibut that we caught to spawn. And sure, you know, sure enough, we got, I think that year or 2019, we, I think we got maybe 23 to 2,500 um, California halibut to actually, to to be released into mission Bay, which is pretty cool. Um, Are there any like programs on the, on the horizon for that, for the founder out there? Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, you know, those numbers
1: are nothing to balk at when, you, when you're talking about numbers in the thousands of stocking flounder. It's uh, a lot of people may hear that and say, oh, well, that's not enough. But, you know, the, my statement is that, well, that's more than you had before. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly other states are doing stock enhancement with flatfish. And in the Gulf, specifically Texas, is one of the ones that's leading the charge. Alabama is doing, uh, starting to do it as well. And then on the Atlantic side, South Carolina and North Carolina have um, have also been in the flounder game for quite some time and have dabbled in stock enhancement of Southern flounder. So uh, there's states that are doing it, and specifically uh, CCA Texas has supported stock enhancement of Southern flounder, uh, for many years since, since 2000 and 2009, I think was when we really started driving money into, uh, support the flounder operations. And, um, we've donated, Oh gosh, probably close to half a million dollars, um, to get, get, um, a new building built and, mm-hmm. Infrastructure and things, items, equipment that the hatchery needed to uh, uh, improve their uh, ability to to work with, with the species. So we're we're have have supported flounder enhancement and will continue to do so because it's really one of our one of our priorities for the state.
0: Very cool, man. Is is the flounder the you call it the southern flounder, right? Right. Okay, so is the southern flounder near and dear to most anglers in Texas hearts? Yeah, we I mean, we have I think twenty four, and I probably got the number wrong
1: by one or two. <laughs> but we have we have several flatfish in the state of Texas. Most of them are tiny. I mean, they don't get bigger than the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, the The most popular fish and and the largest growing flatfish is the southern flounder. We also have Gulf flounder uh here and and sometimes those get confused with southern flounder but by and large southern flounder is, is is the one that folks target and while it's not a game fish in in our state it is it's still one that you have a um a community of anglers that they're diehard flounder fishermen in, and that's that's all they do that's all that they go after um and, you know we have Our popular fish are red drum, speckled trout, or spotted sea trout, and southern flounder, black drum, and sheep's head. And it's a race for who's third between black drum and southern flounder. Uh, Red drum and trout are one and two, or two and one, I should say. And uh, (laughs) southern flounder is fighting for that third position with, with black drum.
0: That's cool, man. That's uh, really cool. I mean it's it's pretty diverse too, all that selection of fish and, and all that. We've talked a lot about the flounder and all that, but is there a lot of I I mean, there's no shortage of issues here in California um as to, you know, when it comes to um advocacy and, and all that stuff and hatchery as well. Are you in Texas or are you typically focusing more on the hatchery side of things or are you having to still kind of um, in lack of a better phrase, defending your right to fish out there. You
1: know, we don't have a whole lot of defending your right to fish um, issues, except for when when there is the uh, concept of a of a closure uh, imposed. We we really don't have the the issues with the right to fish. You know, in regard to like MPAs here in in our state but so our we have had some um you know disputes and and arguments amongst anglers about the appropriate management approach when it comes to a fishing closure whether it be flounder or oysters but um you know it's not like i said it's not revolved around keeping people out of an area it's more revolved around uh, fishing seasons and things like that, so it's really not near the i don't think the at the level that that you guys have to worry about out there,
0: <laughs> yeah, a little bit i mean when it comes to california it's it's not a matter of if it's a matter of what and when and what year <laughs> yeah that's uh that, that's pretty much the case um I know when it comes to Texas, you guys are doing a whole bunch of stuff. Obviously, CC has been way you know around way longer in Texas than it has been in California and all that. So a lot of a lot more notoriety, a lot more um, um, just experience too. But what other projects or what other things that you're working on? I know we talked about oysters a little bit. Um, you want to go into all that? Uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, we'll start with with oysters
1: and uh, just because that's one that that is actually current right now. And um, so we, we have we have a public fishery, a very strong public fishery here in, in, in Texas. And Texas is really one of the last strongholds of a public reef oyster fishery in, in, in the nation, really. I mean, Virginia is starting to make a comeback a little bit with the Eastern oyster. Um, and then Louisiana has a, a a fairly robust public fishery as well, but the rest of the Gulf is, Seen, has seen significant declines and so those concerns and issues of, of declines are, are rearing their head in Texas and have honestly have been um, for the past oh goodness 15 years. Uh, so we're neck deep in, in oyster issues right now and a lot of those issues revolve around uh, restoration projects and the one of the primary concerns and, and issues we have is monies that NGOs, including CCA, uh, put into restoration. We'd like to see that those sites are offered um, extended protection from commercial harvest. Uh, right now, if if I was to conduct a restoration project in a in an open fishing area. Um, the maximum protection that that area gets is two years, which is about the amount of time it takes for those newly recruited oysters to reach market size. And, um, you know, uh, oyster restoration projects aren't cheap. They're, they'll cost you anywhere between 75 and $125,000 per acre. So, you know, no, nobody really wants to invest the millions of dollars that it would take to restore a reef if that reef is just going to be opened back up to the practices that that um, likely led to the demise of the reef in the per- first place so um, you know we're, we're looking at finding ways to offer extended protections to restoration projects the other piece that we're looking at is uh, developing a, a network of, of sanctuary or spawning reefs or, or, or areas um, very much modeled off of what some states have done on the East Coast in protecting areas that allow the reefs to serve all of their ecological functions in the water, uh, whether that be uh, water filtration, wave attenuation, shoreline stabilization, reduced erosion, and the obvious benefits of providing you know, food, habitat or refuge for all the aquatic species that like to associate with with oyster reefs. So we're looking at identifying areas and seeing if we can um, um, uh, protect some areas along the coast and leave those reefs alone and allow them to fulfill their ecological potential in various space systems across the state. So those are those are two um, subjects within the oyster fishery that, that we're working on. There's there's a few more that are a little more detailed, but those in general, those are the two main focuses that we're that we're looking at currently. And it's a it's a difficult one because you 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 have a little bit of user conflict in that um, our people that recreate the bays, uh, whether they're fishing or birding or just coastal enthusiasts that like to appreciate nature and all those things that exposed oyster reefs have to offer. They, they see what is happening in real time as the uh, commercial fishery is is extracting that resource out of the base system. I mean, literally, reefs that guys used to wade five years ago that were knee-deep, they're now wading those reefs, and they're waist-deep or even chest-deep. And so mm-hmm. you're seeing these reefs becoming... Um, uh losing their vertical relief and being scattered and and spread out so you're kind of transitioning a reef from a from a um, a small hill to a parking lot and when you scatter reefs out like that and turn them into parking lots you make them very vulnerable to low oxygen events and sedimentation being covered with sediment so um, this, all this stuff is happening in front of people. They see it happening and they're, we're really seeing is grassroots effort come alive. I mean, that's what CCA is about is grassroots mm. efforts, anglers getting involved at their local level. And this oyster issue has really, um, woke up our, some of our members and that grassroots initiative is, is alive and well, um, all because they're seeing what's going on in, on the water.
0: All this, Shane, is like a dream come true here in California, (laughs) just with our current reefing situation. So this is, this is cool. I mean, this is kind of what could be to a whole extreme here out in California, because I mean, oysters in particular, reefing or oyster reefing, I mean, that, that not only improves a whole lot, but it improves the, the ecosystem as well of just general, you know, the ocean, the, the, yeah, just. Saltwater, uh, saltwater fishing too.
1: Yeah, I mean oysters filter at least our oyster fifty gallons of water per day, and so you you clean up the water. You allow more sunlight to penetrate through the water column. Your seagrass benefits from that. Like I mentioned, it breaks up the wave action. It it protects shoreline from, and we're seeing increased erosion with mm-hmm. sea level rises and and increased presence of these devastating storms along the Gulf. So. Oysters really, oyster reefs are our line of defense, our coastal defense, our natural barriers for these storms, and we're, we're taking that away, and so um, it can have detrimental impacts for um, the Texas coast and really all along the Gulf Coast. So, you know, sometimes you just need that one issue to, uh, that, that really gets people engaged and reminds them of why they're members of the organization. And, and it really spawns a lot of little offshoots. And so you get them hyped up and jazzed up about something else. And it, it really reinvigorates them. And, you know, I'm sure for California, it's just going to take one or two um, special things to occur for, as you mentioned that earlier on, that, that notion of credibility. It just takes one or two things that, that you know you're on the right side of get people jazzed up about and engaged in and and empower them. And, um, you know, that credibility comes along with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to CCA kind of, I mean, that that's really the epitome of reefing in general and all that. But when it comes to reefing nowadays, um, is there a big percentage of oyster reefs going in rather than the concrete balls or anything, or is it kind of like a mixture of everything?
1: It's a mixed bag. I mean, really, it's about finding materials of opportunity. The, the problem with putting shell back in for us is just the availability. Uh, in Texas, we, we require 30% of the shell that the dealers process to go back into the water. And that was a bill that we passed in 2017. And so some of those restoration activities are taking place. And I say 30% of the shell their other option is to use other materials. So, really, what happens is the shell is processed by the shucking houses, and we have a small private lease program in our state. And most of the shucking houses are participants in that lease program. So, they'll take those shells and put them back onto their private leases. So, when we're doing restoration, um, usually our materials of opportunity are river rock, crushed concrete. Um, if we want to restore an area with unharvestable materials, we'll use larger like granite blocks. Um, certainly reef balls, like you mentioned, that's an option too because that's something that's hard to drag a oyster dredge over. So, Really, it's what's available at the time. Uh, there's a number of options that are suitable that Oyster SPAT will recruit to. So we try not to um, just focus on putting shell out.
0: Man, I, am, I, I'm, I, I don't even know what the word is, but I am so jealous <laughs> <laughs> over all that progress right now. Just, just in the reefing category alone, I mean, we're CCA in general. And especially CCA, Texas, and and Florida, and Louisiana, and all the other uh, Gulf states, they're doing they're dedicating so much, whether it's capital, resources, whatnot, to reefing. And really, it's not so much to create more fishing areas, I guess, but it's also to really um, address all of the issues that are you know up front and center right now in, in today's world, where you know whether it comes to ocean acidification or, or anything like that.
1: Yeah, well, that's a beautiful thing about oysters specifically is that it it, it 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 helps fishing, yes, obviously, but it does so much more for the ecosystem and for the environment that it's in that you don't have to pitch it as a project to help fishing. Um, you know, that just something that comes along with it. That's like an a- anecdotal benefit to um, the 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 effort and so i mean it's it's for us it's about um trying to help the bays and reduced erosion wave attenuation shoreline protection, all those other things that the oyster reef oyster reef does uh, you know we we're, we're trying to quell the uh argument that you know you guys are just doing all your efforts so you can have the base yourself and have more spots to fish i mean that is not the case at all and so um oyster reefs are it's been a fun one and it's going to continue to be a fun one and uh, a lot of stuff that other states do whether that's texas or north carolina or, or california you can take what one state has done and use that as the model for the next because i mean it really even doesn't matter what species you're working with you can you can apply the techniques and the strategies that other states have used to what you want to try to do in your state.
0: For sure. And speaking of states, I know um, just a few years ago, I can't remember the, the actual year, but it was just a few years ago where you guys had a massive freeze um, uh, during the wintertime in Texas and all that. Are you guys still seeing the ramifications of that? And you know, how are things going after that? Yeah, so that was February... Valentine's Day really is
1: when it hit 2021 February 14th. So just it, last year. Yeah, uh February 2021, yeah. And so it was um you know Texas uh took the brunt of that. As you as you move east, the effects were I mean really Louisiana didn't even really feel the effects as as much as we did. And so we saw some pretty significant impacts to uh, specifically, speckled trout or spotted sea trout in, in our bays. Uh, a lot of fish were killed, uh, and so we we the state. I say we the state passed uh, some temporary regulation changes uh, that restricted the, the 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 bag size of spotted sea trout, and. Um, and, you know, we're, we're hearing from anglers that they're seeing some fish show up again and they like the quality of fish that they're seeing. So, you know, hopefully those regulations have helped and, you know, it, it was a, a temporary action. So that ruling that was made um, after the freeze to help the, help the trout will expire, not this August, but next August. And we'll go back to our, our, our previous bag and size limits that we had. But yeah, it was pretty devastating to um, see all the images roll across your social media feed, or if you went out there yourself to see all the fish washed up on the shoreline, um, and and it was it was a bad deal. But the thing was, at the time, people had difficulty getting out, and and specifically uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, our Natural Resource Agency. Some areas had difficulty getting out and, and adequately assessing the, you know, the, the true extent of the devastation because, I mean, it it affected our entire state. We had no power. Uh, folks, you know, we had plumbing lines busting and, and people couldn't get gas and, and, you know, all those things that go along with the power outage and a severe freeze. So folks were at home trying to take care of their homesteads and, uh, frankly, trying to stay alive. And so staff couldn't get out there in an adequate time and and measure and count all the fish that had died. But you saw it when you opened up Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or what have you. You saw the images um, and you saw the extent of the devastation. So our, our biologists and fisheries managers here recognize that. And went ahead and passed that temporary regulation to try to try to right the ship a little bit.
0: Was that really driven by the angling community and CCA and all that? Those temporary regulations. It was. It was. Yes, without a doubt. And it wasn't just CCA. It was
1: um, a lot of the fishing guide community um, went out and and took their boats. And I mean, even as the freeze was, it was, it was seven days of record breaking freezing temperatures in, in the state. And so, you know, after like day two or three, these guys started braving the conditions and and went out, the fishing guides did. And, and they started, you know, snapping pictures and videos and things like that. And um, so it was very much grassroots driven, but it wasn't all coming from CCA. There was a, significant amount of support and advocacy from just the regular anglers and uh, the, the fishing guides, the charter fishermen.
0: Nice. And specifically, what were the regulations? Was it just bag limits or, or a size limit or whatnot? It was, yeah, it was both.
1: Um, for So for trout, speckled trout, we're allowed to keep five normally. So they reduced that from five down to three. The minimum size normally is 15 inches to 25 inches is the slot. You can keep one over 25. And they, they reduced that slot to 17 to 23 with no fish over 23. Now, they, they took a regional approach uh, because, as I mentioned, the further east you went, the less devastating the effects were because our bays are deeper the further east and north you go. So they kind of drew a line across the coast and implemented these temporary measures uh, south of that line. And then anywhere north of that line stayed status quo. So, um, I mean, to go from five fish to three was not a huge ask. I mean, a lot of people supported that. But when they talked about increasing this minimum size from 15 to 17, you really start to get out when when you go up in size on spotted sea trout you 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 get out of the schooly fish, the fish that like to congregate in these larger schools, and you get away from fishing for the the smaller ones. are easy to catch; they're the younger of the year. And you enter into catching. Uh, I mean, you're targeting a, a population in which there's far fewer of them seventeen to inches or greater. So, there were some people that had some angst about that aspect of it, but as we as time passes on more and more fish are entering into that slot and people, it's becoming normalized. Um, and so people are more accepting of it.
0: And those regulations are supposed to set to expire later this year, right? Yeah. Next year, August 2023
1: is the sunset. So if, if, you know, if there's support continued support for that, um, bag and size limit, then, You know, anglers can certainly advocate to the commission that hey, we like what's what this is. Can we just keep it? And so, if 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 the commission wants to do that, then they'll certainly have the opportunity to go through rulemaking and do it again. But the current rule certainly expires August two thousand
0: twenty three. That's interesting. So you know, a couple more than a couple years ago, I'd say a handful of years ago, um, we have a we have the species called the calico bass, the kelp bass, and. Mm -hmm. They raised that size limit from twelve inches to fourteen inches for, for for keepers, and as more science has has come out about the bass and everything like that, nowadays I think I catch way more twelve inches than I do fourteen inches, and um, it seems to, uh, from what you're saying, it seems to have somewhat um, of the same effect as 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 the bass out here. Yeah, I mean the the the, the intent, at least for our rule change was
1: to increase the spawning biomass. Mm-hmm. So when you think of um, when you think of a fishery, uh, you think of the fishery as a as a pyramid or or a triangle. Then um, at the base of the triangle you have all of your younger of the year fish and as you move up the triangle you're going up in age class. So there's far fewer of 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 them. So um, you know when you when you move up for some people it, you know that it, it doesn't make sense because you know well the bigger fish have more eggs they they spawn more uh more young well that may be true but there's so far fewer of them Your the the bulk of your spawning stock biomass is at the lower end of that triangle or that or that pyramid so um anytime you change a or have a minimum size you're always going to see a lot of fish right under that minimum size uh, because those fish are rejected, you know, they're having to be culled, they're being turned back. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that you're seeing a lot more 12-inchers now than you used to. And you're not seeing as many 14 inches because um, that's the minimum size that people can keep.
0: For sure. And all of the this freeze, I know it probably was almost devastating to, to CCA Texas and all that, but it was right before a star tournament as well. And I, I think I remember seeing like emergency regulate, not regulations, but emergency rule changes and all that for the star tournament for, for CCA. I'm a, that must've been uh, quite interesting on your end. It was. And I'm glad you brought that up because it, it really presented an opportunity
1: to, to do something that frankly probably should have been done um, a long time ago. And that was to, to move at least a portion of the tournament to catch and release. And so, um, you know, in in the wake of the freeze, we we decided uh, several things. And one was to um, make the tagged redfish division mandatory catch and release. And in fact, that first year, everything was the star tournament was catch and release. We just released a lot of red drum and, and offered and, and, and tagged them with various different colored tags and offered different prizes that matched up with that uh, color of tag. Um, that same year after the freeze, we took spotted sea trout and Southern flounder out of the tournament. Um, Southern flounder weren't affected by the freeze, but it was just an opportunity to, to get them out because, you know, they're struggling for other reasons. It was a good opportunity to, to get them out of the tournament, and so, um, yeah, we we definitely had to pivot and look at reevaluate the tournament, and now this year we've reincorporated some um, species that are you're allowed to keep them and take them into a waste station. Uh, black drum, sheep's head, gaff top; those are all fish that inshore fish you can take to a waste station and, and keep, but. Still, we don't have redfish. I mean, we don't have trout or flounder in the tournament, and the redfish are catch and release. Everybody has bought into the catch and release of the redfish, and um, we don't hear to, we don't hear any complaints about allowing people to keep black drum, or sheep's head or gaff top because all of those fish are are kept anyways by commercial fisheries. So um, we don't hear any negative flack about having that those guys in our in our tournament
0: okay i apologize but what is a
1: gaff top (laughs) (laughs) that's a good question it is it is a saltwater catfish it's one of two uh saltwater catfish in texas it is not a glamorous species i mean you pull this thing up and your leader line and your lure or your hook and everything else is covered with a coat of slime um you know but they they they're opportunistic feeders uh, but they're fun to catch they're a blast Mm -hmm. to catch they're a really good fight they'll work in schools under birds um, just like trout will and so it's a good fish for um, um, fishing guides to put some clients on or for parents to put their kids on Uh, most people just let them go but they're actually not bad uh, eating and so um, if you can get past the slime, then you know you just fry them up or cook them up like you would any other, like you would a freshwater catfish. So um, we're we're trying to by having them in the tournament remind people that there's this, there's this other target fish out here that you can you can pursue. You don't have to put all your efforts into catching the you know the glamorous two or three fish that most people go after.
0: Is the gaff top the same species as the one that? Um... Gosh, I remember, so we, I just went out there in June for the ED workshop and all that, and we were catching some catfish that can actually, not sting you, but if, you, if they get you with their spine, it, it hurts. Is that the same species? Well, yeah, there's the hardhead catfish, which is the one that's a little more, I mean, it's a smaller than the
1: gaff top. Mm-hmm. And it, that's really the one people worry about getting spined by. The gaff top can spine you as well by their pectoral or their dorsal fin. But the gaff top has this on those fins. They have this long, it's not a tentacle, but that, that fin is just extended. It has like a feather hanging off at of the end of it, mm. which if you're handling it, that helps protect you a little bit from getting punctured. But the hardhead catfish, um, that one will get you. And, and if it gets you, you know, it, some people, you know, if they have it on the deck of the, you know, fishing pier or on their boat and they're not careful, they step on it or something like that. They've got to run to shore and go, you know, go to the doctor. Um, and certainly anytime in Texas, when you get a puncture wound on the water, you want to be cognizant of, of bacterial infection. So, um, yeah, you don't play around with them. You got to be careful. Uh, but I'm not sure. You would have known if it was a gaff top because it would have just been extremely slimy and, and the, like I said, the pectoral and, and the, the pelvic fin above those barbs would have had this long, uh, this little lengthy feather hanging off at the
0: end of it. Huh. Very interesting. Very cool, man. So when it comes to CCA Texas and STAR and, and all that good stuff, I mean, obviously we've, we've alluded to the fact that CCA started in Texas uh, previously on the podcast and everything like that. In in your eyes, I mean, you you probably know a little bit about California and our policies and regulations and, and everything. What do you think? In your opinion, is the overlying difference that you know maybe some of our listeners out here on the West Coast don't really um, know about or anything like that? What's really like the big overlying di- uh, difference between uh, California, or a state like California, and Texas? Well, I think organizationally.
1: Um, you guys have a challenge there and it's not, I mean, it's, this is not a, a bad thing. This is actually something that y'all probably have been working on and can, can use to your advantage, but y'all have so many, for my understanding, y'all have a lot of fishing clubs out there um, maybe regionally, uh, you know, varying by, by region. Um, and so it's hard as the new kid on the block to get some of those people to buy into what you're doing. But, you know, like I said, it just takes that one singular issue that people want to um, want to unite around, and and maybe there's some opportunity to to bring a lot more of those people into the in, under the CCA um, umbrella. Um, from a from a state perspective, you know, dealing with our different state agencies, uh, we certainly have it easier here just because we've been around so much longer i mean cca texas has been around not texas but cca has been around as long as our um, natural resource agency has been sampling you know the bays with with gill nets and conducting their their monitoring program so um we've we've been here and have been relevant since 1977 and uh so you know, forty-five years of of being present and being involved in state policy has um, we have that brand recognition, and and it has an impact when you're when you're talking to elected officials and to um, regulators. They they know who we are, and really they respect us because we're very we're actually pretty careful about issues that we get involved in. And we're pretty good about staying in our lane. Um, I mean, there's as a conservation group, you're asked all the time to, to get involved in things that, yes, they do impact the coast. But we only have so much bandwidth, and we really try to stick to, to, to the mission. And so if we're asked to do something that, that we're not sure we should do, we go back and read that mission statement and see if it falls in line with the true intent of that mission and that helps, you know, keep us between the goalposts. But um yeah, our 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 strength here is just just relevancy and, and brand recognition. And that's something that that's something that just takes takes time.
0: Yep. We will definitely get there for sure yeah, eventually for sure. over time. Yeah, absolutely. When I think the one you'd mentioned the one issue that gets everyone riled up and and together and on the same page, we just faced it back in twenty twenty, and that was the um the the bill ab thirty thirty the 30 by 30 efforts and, and all that and we're still facing it today and also and and in other states in, in uh in the u.s as well um has texas faced that issue yet or is there anything going on when it comes to the 30 by 30 efforts or anything or any challenges that uh that you know of that are going on or about to happen
1: um i mean certainly it's been in it's been in uh our our conversations and i mean you know, there's definitely arguments that could be made that we've already achieved <laughs> <laughs> many of the uh, many of the goals of thirty by thirty thirty. So, um, but we, you know, we don't hear it constantly like you guys have out there for the past two years, and um, you know, we don't have as much the 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 cry for creation of these MPAs off of our coast. Um, so um it's not it's not on the forefront of you know something that we're that we're working on for Texas specifically. Now CCA National, which um offices here as well in, in Houston, they are certainly uh entrenched on, on the issue for uh numerous states and yeah, California is certainly at the top of that list.
0: For sure. Well, before we let you go, Shane, um, obviously, you know, you're know you entrenched, as am I, in the, in the CCA model and the CCA organization working for, for CCA Texas and me in California. When it comes to the local chapter model, it's super, super important to kind of stick with the program, have the banquets, have the, um, for lack of a better phrase, breaking bread with everyone in the community and everything. Um, as you know, in, in your role with CCA Texas and all that, do you still... Are, are you still able to kind of make it out to banquets and participate and, and are you, do you still belong kind of like to a certain chapter? Yeah, I'm a member of my chapter in my hometown and, and make, make some of
1: those meetings. Um, I, I often go and speak to, uh, our chapters across the state. So I, I try to be, become the interface between the grass and the roots. And, um, and because, um, they need to. They need to. They need to have a face with the name, and they need to know who they can reach out to to address the issues that they're having. And so, I, I, I try to do. I do a good bit of that. And then on the banquet side, I go to um, a few throughout the year. I mean, we have sixty chapters in Texas, so. Um, and we six have zero. Six zero. <laughs> and we have we basically have nine Chris's running around across <laughs> the state uh putting on these events. And so um they have most of those pretty well covered, but I'll go to a few throughout the year to um hang out and break bread, as you mentioned, with 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 some of the members. I mean, there's a few that we put on that I don't want to miss just because they're such wonderful events, and then there's a handful of others that I I haven't been to in a few years that I feel like I need to go to. So I'll try to make the rounds across the state as much as I can.
0: Okay. So you will know way better than I will. So when I have to go to Texas for a national board meeting or anything like that, um, or even just, just, just to go out there, what banquet shall, shall I not miss in your opinion? Well, if, if there's, there's, have you been to any here? I've been to, I think central Houston and I've been to Corpus as well. Okay. So you saw Corpus is a big one and,
1: um, very well attended. And, you know, that's definitely one of the top three or four in the state. Uh, Austin is one to experience and, and, and it is, it's, it's one that I won't, I don't try not to miss. So that is, that is a good one. We have, um, one in Fort Worth, which is really unique. It's just the venue that makes it so special. So that's a cool one to go to as well. And let me give you a third. It's <laughs> it's um, it's it's out in the country. I mean, it, but it, you won't find a group of guys that care more about their home waters, and that is in El Campo, Texas. It's the Matagorda Base chapter. Just a lot of energy, a lot of fun, and and their their net revenue from that chapter um although it's much smaller event and um fewer people coming it's it's on par with some of the bigger guys across the state and so just continually be impressed by that matagorda base chapter so that's three events i think i think i don't know if you're coming to um headquarters not headquarters if you're coming to houston <laughs> um in this november around that national board meeting but we you know the the national habitat program building conservation trust uh, puts on an, an event in houston um at the same place where you went to that central houston um, mm-hmm. uh, fundraising event um they put on a little little thing there and that's a fun thing to go to um but and that one's all about raising money specifically for our national habitat program.
0: So I'm uh, I'm going to be writing an email to Robert and uh, letting him know that I'm going to be coming out to all these banquets and all that. And he, uh, he yeah, is 20 say 20.
1: Robert, put me on the calendar. And Robert would be, heck yeah, let's go. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> that to Austin,
1: El Campo, and 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 uh, Fort Worth.
0: Oh man, this is cool. Awesome. Thank you for those wrecks. And, um, lastly, are you going to make it out to California anytime soon? You want to go fishing?
1: Um, I don't have anything booked and, and I would love to. Yes. And yes. And yes. And yes. So, <laughs> um, I need to talk to Robert as well. So in your email to yeah. say, Oh, by the way, <laughs>
0: I'll you copy need,
1: <laughs> you need to pay for Shane to come out to California and, and, Hey, you know what? I could come speak to one of your chapters. How about that? Hey,
0: perfect, perfect, <laughs> excellent. And uh, before we get going here, Shane, you also are a host of a CCA podcast as well in Texas,
1: right? I am. It's Coastal Advocacy Adventures is the name of the podcast. Um, I think I'm have forty nine episodes, but I've been doing it a long time. Started out strong and and definitely have have let it. Uh, falls to the wayside in the last few years, but there's some really good ones uh, on their coast. It's, and you can just look it up on most podcast uh, platforms, coastal advocacy adventures. My favorite far and away is one that I did with um, Captain Billy Sandifer, uh, who is now deceased. And then my former mentor and his friend, Dr. Uh, David McKee and the captain Sandifer just lived a really unique life. Um, A couple of years of it spent out on a, uh, uh, on a barrier Island down in South Texas and um, living with the coyotes and the, uh, the ghosts out there as he puts it. So it's a fascinating listen. And that's, by far my favorite one that i've that i've done to date it's called salt of the earth is the the title of that one
0: cool man that's uh i'm saving that one right now go get a listen while yeah. I, uh yeah. while episode, I go sit in california traffic there you go <laughs> episode
1: 11 um coastal advocacy adventures podcast
0: cool cool man well before we let you go anything new and exciting or anything we need to be on the lookout from uh on your end or of texas end well, I, you
1: know we 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 hit a lot of the relevant issues that that are happening here, so um i I don't really have anything new except um I would just encourage the two of us in our states to to stay in touch and see how we can learn from each other and see how we can help each other out. You know, one thing that I've seen with this oyster issue issue specifically across the Gulf is that we had people from other states traveling to Texas to give public comment and speak in support of the conservation measures we're trying to pass. And they were, you know, the, the theme of their of their efforts was called One Coast. And so um, although we don't share the same coast, we share the same um, conservation ethic ethos. And so I think that there's opportunities for us to support each other in our work, even though um we're not on the same coastline we can still um offer each other some sort of uh help in 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 our respective efforts so let's let's keep in contact and see how we can help each other out and um do do a site visit here and a site visit there
0: yeah absolutely absolutely you kind of hit the nail on the head there where yeah we don't share the same coast but we definitely um share the same love for you know ocean angling and conservation as well Shane, thank you so much, my friend. Really, really appreciate the time and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely, you're welcome, Chris. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Awesome, guys. That is it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us again for another week of a great podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at CCA California. Go ahead, leave us a five star review on the podcast wherever you get your podcast, and uh, we definitely love, would love to hear from you. Thank you, guys, so much. We will see you guys next week.